Welcome to the MFP Live podcast. I'm producer Courtney Monk here. On this episode of MFP Live, publisher Kimberly Griffin and editor Donna Ladd speak with Anastasia Higginbotham. Anastasia is the author of the children's book, Not My Idea, a book about whiteness, an award-winning book that has gained the attention of many local and national politicians. She talks about her journey of writing children's books that deal with very real topics in an effort to help children to cope with the changes in their lives. They also discuss the importance of not censoring children from the realities of race, but instead being honest with them about it. Anastasia is a Pennsylvania native who launched the children's book series, Ordinary Terrible Things, in 2015. The children's series discussed divorce, grief, sex, and race. Her acclaimed book series has received much recognition with her latest book, Not My Idea, a book about whiteness being named as the 2019 International Children's Library White Raven book. Here's Donna. We, uh, we have a really timely show tonight. Uh, many of you have seen all of the conversations and the stories that Mississippi Free Press particularly has been doing about efforts to ban books and other materials in Mississippi schools and libraries. In fact, we ran a story recently by Ashton Pittman about the state auditor, Shad White, endorsing some of those efforts to uh, remove certain kinds of books from schools and libraries in the state. And there was one book in particular that he really focused in on. The book, Not My Idea, a book about whiteness, a children's book, by Anastasia Hickenbotham was one of the examples that he held up. And he said this about her book, everyone should be for teaching civil rights to children. They should not be for teaching kids that an idea about whiteness that some white lady made up five minutes ago is evil. That white lady is here with us tonight. That uh, and she, Anastasia is calling in from Brooklyn. Welcome, Anastasia, and we're so happy that you're here tonight to talk about this. I'm so happy you invited me. Thank you. And for those of you who may have missed it, Anastasia also did a column that she submitted to the Mississippi Free Press, which is how we kind of got to know her after the Shad White piece. And so that uh, is a column that she's written uh, in MFP Voices piece that she submitted. And for the record, I've also invited Shad White to uh, submit a column about uh, his views on this. And we've also invited him on to MFP Live and we haven't heard back from him. But uh, but that invitation has gone out a couple of times. So, Anastasia, first, uh, tell us more about yourself, you know, where you grew up and and then kind of how you ended up writing a children's book about race and racism. I um grew up in southwestern Pennsylvania in a town called Washington, PA. I'm one of five children. The fourth of five were all named to match. We all have names that begin with A. My upbringing was very loving and my parents are Italian and Syrian. So I grew up eating really, really good food. <laughs> you know, the books are something that I've made my whole life. I always have uh, drawn little stories and illustrated them and, and written, written the stories to go with them. And um, throughout my life, like made little books and given them to people I love. And the books that I make now are a series called Ordinary Terrible Things. And um, each book 
focuses on some aspect of childhood that is ordinary and and terrible enough that uh, it warrants taking a pause and taking a moment. And, and each book really bears witness to a child going through change, going through uh, some sort of upheaval or crisis in their lives and in their identity. The books are Divorce is the Worst, Death is Stupid, Tell Me About Sex, Grandma, and Not My Idea, a book about whiteness. And um, then my most recent book is uh, What You Don't Know, A Story of Liberated Childhood. And um, a new one coming in April is called You Ruined It. And that one is about childhood sexual abuse. So each book really takes us into a very compassionate uh, witnessing of a child who's, who's coping with their life exactly as it is. I make the books uh, using collage on grocery bag paper and other discarded paper. I use discarded materials. I, um, the only thing I pay for is pens and glue. I make them as paper dolls on these little backgrounds and um, they've become, you know, everything to me. Uh, I just, they're, each one is expressing some aspect of something that I experienced in my childhood, but, you know, has really changed me. Like those events that uh, break you and make you. Mm -hmm. So uh, the book about whiteness came about uh, in, uh, I started to write it in 2013, 2014 with the help of and with the encouragement and blessing of um, the, the Black women educators at the school where m both my children at the time went. It's called Brooklyn Free School. It's in Clinton Hill, Brooklyn. And um, the, the focus became like, let's, if we're going to do justice, we need to do racial justice. We need to really look at this. And um, so all of the families were invited to discuss exactly where we're at, where we're coming from in terms of our, our racialization. Mm -hmm. And the white families were invited to really look at whiteness. And I have always been an activist. I've always been um, tuned in to issues of injustice and, and, and planting justice instead. And, um, and yet it wasn't until I was in those rooms, in those conversations with not only the, the women educators who had gathered us, but also the, my fellow family members, you know, the, the, the parents of the students going to the school, black and brown parents and, and um, parents of color, who when we came together all together, we got to hear from each other about what people were experiencing, but then we would also break into groups and um, white people would talk with other white people and black and brown people would be able to talk with one another and um, just talk about how race has affected us and then how, how are we raising our children up in that and what are we modeling for them and what do they see us caring about and paying attention to and, um, and what do they see us avoiding if, if that is the case. Um, around this time is when I saw the Toni Morrison interview on Charlie Rose, which is from 1993, but I didn't see it until like 2013 or 2014 where, um, he asks her how she feels about racism. And she says, how do you feel about it? You know, she puts the question right back to him and then tells him white people have a very, very serious problem and they should start thinking about what they can do about it. Leave me out of it. And um, that to me was thrilling. I, I felt such a charge 
of uh, responsibility and the and and joy in in being able to bring myself more internalized, more fully to this to seeding and cultivating racial justice everywhere in every way that I possibly could, especially in my own mind, hmm. but certainly with my children. Well, you know, you talking about that reminds me several years back uh, for three years, I was what was called a W.K. Kellogg leadership fellow, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was in a cohort uh, in Mississippi um, with, you know, I think there were three white people in the cohort. Um, and I bring that up to say that we had conversation after conversation after conversation, right? And about uh, race and racism, but also about inequity and education and schools and uh, criminal justice. I mean, all sorts of, of societal kinds of things. And as you know, everything's magnified in Mississippi. You know, the problems are everywhere, but everything's magnified here for good reason. Mm -hmm. um, his good historic, well, bad historic reason. So I only say that to say that was wonderful. And usually I was the last person to talk because my whole point was to listen, you know, and to try to take in as much as I could take in and to understand. And one of the things that I heard over and over again from my fellow fellows and friends and uh, Black friends and colleagues and advisors has always been that white people have to do the work, right? You know, that's a phrase, uh, a common phrase at this point. And I think for people who maybe to talk to people who need want to dip their toe into that water of doing the work, mm -hmm. how do you get started? So I, I guess what I'm curious from you, because you know, it kind of looks like you're doing some of this work here. You know, you've, you've published this book and you're being banned across the country or threatened <laughs> to be banned. So talk about that. Um, yeah. You know, talk about what doing the work looks like to you. Doing the work is uh, listening to Black people, listening to. So it's for me, it has, I'll just tell it how it is for me. Um, it was reading James Baldwin and learning about. Uh, observing the way James Baldwin writes white women and um, reading Toni Morrison and Alice Walker again and paying attention to the white characters and, um, and ch checking in with myself about just, just what I bring into the room, what I bring into every interaction that I come into. Um, and, and those books, are, those are very uh, powerful emotional experiences to read those authors and to examine my own whiteness and my own power as a white person through those books. Also, uh, really important to me was uh, Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, which is a, a children's book. And, um, you know, kids will be reading that in fourth grade, seventh grade. And um, I tuned into the character of Jeremy in Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, who is a white child whose family is the notoriously uh, anti-Black racist family in town, overtly violent. And Jeremy, he can't bear it. It doesn't align for him. It doesn't, it is not his nature. It is not his uh, s sense of justice at all. And he wants very much to be friends with the Logan family, the, the, the protagonists in the story, the heroes. 
And, um, but his proximity to the Logan family is endangers them. And he's in this in-between place where he's not, he's not from his, he's from his family and he has to contend with it, but he's, he's not of that. And, um, but he also is not with, he cannot just go over to the Logan's house. And so that lostness that Jeremy experiences and that looking for himself and, and aligning, you know, he won't, in that book, there's these scenes where the bus goes by and the black children who are going to the same school cannot, are not invited to, and not welcome to ride that bus. And, and the bus driver and the kids all together do a, a lot of really bullying, bullying within a bus. So terrorizing the Logan family, the Logan children as they're going to school. And Jeremy won't ride that bus. And to me, that is looking at that and tuning into that is part of the work. The other aspects of the work are what I depict in the book, which is the child is seeing the violence that is um, coming through his mother's screen. You know, she's watching something on the news or on her um, feed and the child sees it. And, you know, they have to turn around. Everything in the book is intentional. And the child has to turn around and see what's going on all the way behind their back to see this act of brutality and, um, and murder of a person who is unarmed and has their hands up. And um, when the child sees that, it registers. You know, the book doesn't depict the shooting, but the book depicts the child's reaction to it. So the tension in the child's body and the way they clench their jaw and the heartbreak, well, the confusion, the heartbreak comes later, but in the book, the confusion that comes first when the mother turns off the, the, the uh, TV right away and says to their white child, you don't need to worry about this. You're safe. Understand? And the child thinks but does not say no. And um, so that moment, engaging from that moment for an adult or a child, to me, is a very useful way to get into the work because the work is connecting with our own humanity. The work is connecting with our own instincts about social justice, I mean, racial justice. The work is aligning what we believe intellectually, what we know in our minds and what we feel in our gut, and then how we move through the world. How much space do we take up? How many other voices do we drown out? Whose backs are we standing on? Who are we not giving credit to? In what ways are our, is our money and experience of money and interest rates and credit scores, and in what ways is the favoritism toward people who appear as white, who, who show up as white, and, or who have proximity to whiteness, in what ways is that just filling our pockets? You know, even at, at different scales, of course. But, and in what ways are we not finding the same trouble? So in the book, I show the child uh, in the store looking at, you know, the, the mother wants to buy something, the white mom wants to buy something, and the white child is just looking at some bowls up on a shelf. And, and um, there was also a black child in the store, and they're looking at some bowls on the shelf. And I, and I show the security guard in the center of the page with their eyes on the child who has brown skin. And I show the police cars and their sirens um, outside the window of the, of the child traveling in their mother's car. And the child is undisturbed. 
by those police sirens. They, they've never been pulled over. They've never been harassed by police officers. And so there's a relaxation. There's a lack of trouble. There's a, there's a lack of anxiety and, and vigilance. And yet what we see in the book is a child who is unnerved and very disturbed. And, and what we see on um, the page where there's a press conference so it's all happening in the course of like one day. And we see the child, the white mom takes the white child to visit an, an uncle. And um, we, we see the child watching the TV at the house of their aunt and uncle and seeing the press conference. And, you know, in the book, I say, you may get the message that racism is only happening to black and brown people. And, um, and you see the child, you know, the, the press conference that I frame there is a direct reference to Alton Sterling, who was murdered in Baton Rouge. And there was a child at the press conference, his child, crying and trying to hide behind his shirt when he cried. And, and a family member or, or um, a man in a red shirt behind him held him, really like held him up at the press conference. And so in that scene, in that spread, the white child is full of emotion and and beholding the black child on the screen who is both of the children are covering their mouth like th this is the emotion is too big for their bodies the injustice is unfathomable to both of them and yet on one side of the page you know the the child who is grieving and covering his face is being held and um uh, the white child his family turns away they're not hostile about it exactly well the mom's a little bit hostile but they're just, they're not being, they're not being held. They need to be held. Something is happening that is about that child's humanity and that child's sensitivity. And it is right. It is trustworthy. And the two women there who turn away because they can't watch the news and they're making excuses for the police officer, you know, they're missing an opportunity to embrace that child and to understand more about themselves and about what this child will lead them into, which is their own, what they're trying to avoid about, you know, racial, racial justice is possible, I say in the book, but, you know, only if we're honest with each other and ourselves. And so the child's curiosity is what leads their own family. And I don't know how, you know, I don't, in the book, it doesn't say whether the family's coming along or not. Throughout the book, we never really see the mother head on. The only time we see the mother her eyes is when she's kind of caught in a mirror, in uh, the rearview mirror, and um, so all of that is important. And the book is, the book is, it's gentle, and it's also intense. When I've read it to children, and I've been able to had the good fortune to stay and see how they engage with it and listen as they engage with it, they sit taller after they read this book after this book is read to them, because they know they're being trusted with something dangerous and important. And they do want to get right with this. You know, all, all of the kids in the room, and the, you know, the black and brown kids in the room, the kids who are experiencing being targeted by anti-blackness, they speak with authority once this book is read. Like, I know all about this. And there's a different, uh, posture. There's a they they just sit in their dignity in a different way, and the white children do not constrict or do not cower. 
they too, they're like their shoulders relax. They, they, they lean in. They know that it's wrong, that systemic racism is wrong. And it's a relief to find out that there are forces at work that have nothing to do with them, that were not their idea, that they were born into. It's like, wait, what? This is a, this is a system? This is a setup? This is man-made? That means it can be unmade. And it also means it's not like if you're experiencing the, when you're experiencing the discomfort and the pain and the, and the heartache of, of confronting the reality of racism and um, that what Resma Menachem calls the reality of the brutality of racism, um, it, 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 it really makes such a difference to know that um, it's not a personal failure to be born into this, to be, to have this skin at all. It is a, um, but no, so knowing about those systems, knowing about those forces at work, those invisible forces and that invisible contract um, gives children a chance to locate themselves and kind of shake into their own bodies and be like, I can make choices about this. I can choose how I relate to this. I don't have to believe just what I've been told, but I can, I can examine what I've been told. I can, you know, like I, I heard this once, you know, my, my um, relatives sometimes tell this joke, which I never thought was funny. Or I laughed, but I don't know why I left and I, didn't, I don't want to laugh. It's not funny to me. And it's a relief. It's, that's the thing about this is that when they ban this book, they're blocking the opportunity for uh, white children to share the load and to be trusted to shoulder some of the burden that so far has been carried entirely by black and brown children from, from day one. It's all coming in. And when people fuss about it making white children feel sad or feel bad about their race, it's just like they already feel bad. The ones that are conscious, the ones that are connected, the ones that are sensitive, the ones that are paying attention and loving who they love. This racial justice education is a way to feel connected and that solidarity and that alignment and, um, and feel your own agency. And really then ultimately to move as a collective, children moving as a collective, not just adults. And it's, it's really important to get the weight of that uh, that entire burden of navigating racism, understanding racism, succeeding in spite of racism, you know, code switching to endure it, shaking it off, being resigned to it for very young black and brown children to constantly be expected to wade through that. And it's like the double standard of thinking that like white, you know, it's too much when people will say, you know, this is too intense for young children. It's like, yeah, it is. It's too intense for the children who are at the receiving end of it. And yet, you know, and it's not another accusation of the book is that the book, um, you know, that a book like this portrays whites as oppressors and blacks as victims. Like, and those are the words, you know, those are the ways that it's said. And it's just like the, the black children in this book, the black families represented in this book in particular, they're good. They have each other. I mean, you, you, you can see on, on all the pages, there's, they're holding each other. The, 
they're aligned with one another. They know who they are. They know what it is. They know what the world is. It's not new information to them. There's the riches of that, you know, the, the cultural experience of, of having each other and having, having the language for this. And that's where, you know, it's, it may be brand new for the white child. But the book says you're welcome here. You're needed. You belong. You're, there is a legacy that is not the legacy of racialized terror, but the legacy of racial justice, of joining together in solidarity within Black-led movements that white people have always been a part of. And when we tell white children that, then they can, they can step into that and belong immediately. I want to go back to something you said at the beginning, because I think it's always good to set the tables uh, so that when you hear it, you hear it. You talked about um, sitting and listening with other parents and educators at the beginning. And you talked about what are you paying attention to? What are you focusing on? Is white or white presenting? What is happening in your home, in your conversation that is not useful, possibly racist, even if it's benign? What are some things that you heard that you went, oh, in those Mm -hmm. conversations? Stuff about hoarding resources, being first in line to get the thing, whatever the thing is, the spot in that good school or that good class. So hearing about hoarding resources, um, the uh, wealth redistribution, the necessity of reparations and reparations done in a way that is different from a gift, different from a donation, not the same thing, reparations for repair and um, centering, you know, centering ourselves as white people in the um, taking up a lot of space with our processing and defensiveness or shame that, you know, being stuck in that like shame thing that it's no good for anybody. Also the thing of like the necessity of shifting. So this idea of an ally, I don't think of myself as an ally. And I, I learned this from those conversations. It is in my interests to liberate myself from this structure that I did not choose. That was not my idea. This is not a situation to feel lucky and guilty about. That is not what's happening here. That is why the devil is on page 58 in the book, offering special favors, stolen land, uh, stolen riches in exchange for your soul. Because Mm. that is not good for me. I don't want that. And the devil is not a person. The devil is the devil. Devil is evil. It's not whatever. They try to distort it, but I know what it is and you know what it is. The liberation you're fighting for is your own. You're not doing this for somebody else. You're not doing this to be like a good white person. It's like, do you want this? Is this your idea? And if it isn't, how are you going to live differently? How are you going to move through space differently? How are you going to do money? How are you going to, like, these are really good questions to ask ourselves. Like, how do we want to be in this moment? And what do our children see us caring about? What do we tune into and whose voices are the authority in our lives? And, you know, that's why things like, that's why James Baldwin is so important. You know, and, and this idea that a white lady invented the term whiteness uh, five minutes ago, you know, and that was, he's just messing around by saying, he knew what he was doing with that. This is, these are, I, everything I learned, I learned from black women and men who um, were gracious enough 
to put it in a book. And then in terms of the school, that's the other thing, Kimberly, that that idea of, you know, go do this, go do this, go do this on your own, go do this with each other. And there's some, you know, Malcolm X has some beautiful language about like, yeah, yeah, you, you need, you need to do this too, like do it over there with each other. And we, we know what we need to do over here. I don't, I don't need you to do anything for me. You go do that with each other. And, um, and Resma Menicum, who wrote My Grandmother's Hands, talks about white people creating culture of cultivating racial justice and unearthing and undoing structures of supremacy that live in our minds and live in our bodies. And so another thing that happened in those meetings is we, you know, we got a lot of information about like, uh, like a mirror held up about whiteness culture, aspects of whiteness culture. And so, and in this debate, in these debates about CRT and various things, um, white people doing the work, it's always really important to distinguish between white people and whiteness. Well, it's a couple of things you said, because I've been talking a lot with different groups that I'm involved in. And when people invite me to things, like somebody just invited me to do, to speak at something. And they said, let us know if you need a hotel room or uh, mileage. And I said, look, y'all got to stop doing that. Either you offer everybody the thing or you don't. Mm. Because what you're doing is you're putting the onus on whoever it is that can't afford it or needs a little advance or, and you say things like, well, just put it on your credit card. Everyone doesn't have a credit card. Even if you think they are this middle-class, whatever. And so I've been saying a lot in meetings, I've been saying, if it's not a reimbursement, if you're giving people a thousand dollars to travel, give them a thousand dollars and move on. Mm. And if they don't show up to what they're supposed to be to, then you talk to them about it. But this whole idea of, because it's that's a default of a certain kind of thinking that mm. of course you have a credit card to put it on of course you can front this up and i yeah. said you're you're it's very uneven because we're especially we're inviting these very young people that just left college and we're you know we're invite we have all these different layers and if you give people the money it's and if you don't trust people don't invite them and so then and everybody's like, oh and yeah. so that's i've been thinking i've been thinking a lot about how we yeah. deal with money and how we deal with money in a professional sense and the default of whiteness in literature. Um, mm-hmm. I read a lot. I, no, I don't read a lot. I read a lot of fiction. I don't read a lot mm-hmm. of mysteries. I listen to a lot of mysteries when I'm driving. And there are authors that describe people just like they are. She had caramel colored skin and dark hair, or she was a blonde and she was kind of olive colored. But there are other authors that must tell you if the people are not white. So the default is that this is a white person walking into the room unless I tell you they're not white. Yeah. Yeah. That default. The default of whiteness, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's this this default of, and the idea that our children, all children are so fragile that they cannot hear the truth and y'all yelling and fighting in front of them and getting divorced and drinking too much in front. I mean, come on now. Yes. We notice some of these people, you're drinking too much in front of these children. You're yes. screaming. You're having knockdown drag outs in, when the doors are closed and you're worried about if they're reading about the March on Selma. Stop it. Yes. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. you know, it's like you, got, they got some trauma, but that's probably not it. I don't know where I was going with that. 
But yeah. those were things that made me, you, when you were talking about that, it's this default to a certain kind of behavior. And one of the things I've noticed is that people who call themselves allies, uh, I don't call them that, that's what they call themselves. I'll okay. watch like when they're out with their friends and all their friends are white and all their kids' friends are white and they send their kids to a white school. Mm. And, they, and, I'll, and I'll think that's not helping. Mm-mm. And I'll say, well, when was the last time a black person came to your house for dinner, or you went to dinner with a black person, or a brown, or a brown, or an Asian person? Everybody's like, it's like that's then you don't know me at that point. Mm-mm. You have some ideas, and you and they're probably they may be well-meaning, or they may be mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. Um, which is what you're talking about is you have to sit with people and listen to them instead yeah. of having this idea of who they are and what they believe and what they want from you. Yeah. But I'll turn it over to Donna. And they have to, yeah. and they have to want to spend time time with you. Are, right. are you someone that somebody could spend time with and not and it not mm. cost them? Oh, that's good. I'm gonna use that one. <laughs> it's it's well, gonna cost it, them. I've heard a few things I'm gonna use. Tonight. <laughs> <laughs> that is, I, I know. Yeah, that. we're gonna have all kinds of clips out on this one. Uh, I mean, and, and if people aren't yeah. in your in your immediate sphere, I mean, we we have these devices. Follow everybody on Instagram. Who's mm-hmm. follow all the writers and the activists and the and just like find them. Look look for people who to be your authority, to be whispering in your ear or, or yelling in your ear. Just like listen to what people's experiences. Let it change mm-hmm. you. You know, I love that you said that because you know social media. Um, with all of its downsides, is a great place to lurk and learn. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've said this to Kimberly before about just, you know, about all of the people I follow mm-hmm. that here's the thing, though, I'm not going to jump in the middle of no. conversations, you know, no. that I should not be jumping in the middle of. It's like you you listen and you learn and you laugh a lot sometimes, too, because, mm-hmm. you know, there's going to be a lot of funny things out there. But just think about it. And I think that's what is so, you know, I, I grew up a little white girl in the town where Cheney Goodman and Schwerner were killed. You know, I was three mm-hmm. when that happened. It's like, so here I am a little girl, little white girl, you know, hearing jokes throughout, you know, my teen years. And then even as an adult somewhat in white places, spaces, where they assumed I was racist so they could just say these things. And what's so frustrating to me about the all these book banners freaking out about whiteness and this and that and the other and about how bad it is for uh, whiteness, quote unquote, right, that they don't want to talk about that, how bad it is for kids to hear these things, is that you're hearing them. We all know that's true. It's a lie that's being passed around. I can give you an example after example of this from the time that I was very little and with all kinds of people, not just uneducated white people, you know? So how many times have I heard the joke that, I'm not going to say the exact words, but how many times have I from Neshoba County heard the joke that, well, you know what they do in Neshoba County with certain people who don't behave? They put them under a dam. I heard that that was a refrain growing up. And I'm a little girl who is just going, what the hell? I mean, you know, maybe I wasn't using those words. Yeah. And then when I would try to talk about these things, I had grown 
men around me, including uncles who would call me an in lover as a little girl. This is hard to take just because you're trying to be compassionate and don't, you know, and don't understand the hate that's all around you. And Mm -hmm. so that's kind of what I want to say back to those people. It's like, we know this is a lie. We white people who grew Mm -hmm. up here hearing this and people like that have ever since I've been back here, you know, for 20 years now doing the kind of journalism that talks about these things, the people coming up to me in the grocery store and whispering and saying, I heard that my whole life. So I'm sorry, I'm preaching, but, but that's the thing. We know it's a lie. We know that people know that, that these things are sad and that they're said in front of children. And then that some of those white children then go to schools and say really bad things to other children or the teachers do. God, don't get me started about what I heard teachers say. Go ahead. Yeah. Anastasia. No, that's so, it's so important what you're saying because there's so much. So that is also goes back to like, what's the work? The work is finding other white people who you can process that experience of being racialized into anti-blackness and conditioned into a kind of whiteness framework that associates whiteness with goodness and innocence when it's just not true. And processing and kind of excavating all of the lies we've internalized. But it's not just, you know, it's important to notice it's not just a mental thing. It's not just an intellectual thing. You can't just have a book club. You can't just read a book. You can't just learn what are the polite things to say and what are the impolite things to say. There's so much in in our bodies now that we know about how things get handed down through the generations and passed down through the DNA. Resources, really important resources for me have been Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, who is a Zen priest who was advised on this book and was really, when I was almost finished with the book, said to me, uh, among other things, said to me, you haven't prepared white children for the rejection that they're about to face when they challenge white supremacy with their families. That is what, that is the reason why the book ends with the child alone. They run through that playground to get some air at the end and the black girls are there playing together and enjoying themselves and all, you know, in the tire swing. The white child just runs on by because they got some stuff to work out on their own. And that's why the book, you know, offers it, why it's so important too to connect them with other other kids other white kids and and um and with us and with their family members who they can you know come home and talk about it with and process some of what's roiling in their gut about it because it is sickening and it is sickening to hear those things and but there's a lot we can do there's a, a lot available to us in somatic practice. I don't know if people are hearing about this, but it really is. It's about just connecting with the body and connecting with what's all buried in there and, and tucked in there and, and um, finding ways to, you know, get that flow going and, and be able to bear it, be able to stand it when the, um, when it's tense, when it's hot, like, and literally constriction in your body and hot in your stomach and be able to stay and, and continue to unravel ourselves from, from this thing we're all caught up in. Yeah, I, you know, 
you said there's so much there. I've just got all these emotions churning, you know, because I've got all this stuff from childhood, you know, that you have to spend a lifetime unpacking in some ways. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. But the things that I want to say is that, A, the things I'm proudest of are walking out of rooms where people were being racist as a child and Mm -hmm. as an adult, making that point. And then the other thing that I want to add to that is that there is a real joy in to talk about these things. There are, there is so much love on the other side of it. The people that you get to know, black, white, other people who want to come together and face these things and to talk about them and to do something about them. No, we're not perfect. We're going to mess up what, you know, and we got to help each other through it. All of those things are true, but there is a real, and that's what I like to say to people. You don't know what you're missing. (laughs) And the joy and the love of this. Mm -hmm. Um, So say a couple words about that, Anastasia. And then we have some reader questions we want to jump in here on too. But say a little bit about the joy, you know, because I know that you agree with me on this. I I just have a feeling. I do because because we're not alone. We're not alone. Um, That that legacy in the book, there's this, there's the, moment where the child opens the book and um, reads the words, uh, for 400 years, white people have committed outrageous crimes against black people. All along, every step of the way, people who love justice and love each other have been fighting back. And that is really important and, and possible mm-hmm. and immediate and accessible in this moment. And so because the side that we're on is the side of love. And love is not enough in terms of, I mean, let me say it this way, kindness is not enough. Mm-hmm. Um, being nice to everybody of, and loving all the skin tones, it's like, it's great. It's great when you're this age. But interrogating structures has to come very soon after that. <laughs> and we have to, we get to, I really, I see it as a the chance of a lifetime that we get to do this with each other, that we get to do this with our children, that we get to align and be in solidarity with everybody in the pursuit of our, all of our liberation, which is black liberation is our liberation. And so to align with that, you know, uh, when I went on tour, I'll say this as quick as I can. When I went on tour for this book in 2018, I took a cardboard sculpture of um of Colin Kaepernick with me and um I painted him and he I I made him exactly the right size so that I could fold him and take him as a carry-on on the airplane and um then I would unfold this cardboard Colin Kaepernick and I would I would stand him up next to me and I would kneel next to him when I read and it was a way of aligning it was like a ritual it was a practice for me to align with black liberation each time I read the book and the pleasure that children and adults, but that the children got out of doing the same thing, you know, as soon as I was done reading and they would come and they wanted to kneel with him. They wanted to be right in that spot. And, you know, and he was small and he was their size. It was a bodily thing that they could do is to let me put myself where I want to be instead of just getting swept along and there's joy in that too in having a choice and um and in being 
natural. It is much more natural to love each other and connect with each other and to fight with each other to make sure that everyone's all right. It's much more natural to do that than to hoard power and wealth and access and then feel shame about it. That's weird. But to or not it, feel shame about it. Or not, or feel no shame about <laughs> feel, yeah. At least if you feel shame, we, we got a jumping off point. Um, <laughs> I, so we have um, a reader question, and you've okay. answered um, a viewer question. You, I think you've answered mm -hmm. part of this, but okay, it comes from YouTube. Quick. So wherever you're watching it, you can also watch it on YouTube and Facebook. What do you make of the new wave of book banning, which we talked about? Um, and they also talked about books that look at... Um, LGBTQ. race relations, LGBTQ issues, and now apparently the Holocaust, yeah. which is insane. Yeah. Um, That's Bryant's now. question. Be afraid. Yeah. Be alert. Um, it's happening. They're, they're passing these bans. And celebrate the, you know, I just want to celebrate the teachers and the librarians who have the conviction and the courage and the commitment to bring these books into their classrooms because they know and they bear witness to and they experience the joy of seeing the way children interact with these books. These are good books. These are brilliant authors who are being silenced. And it is a matter of life and death. We know that how important it is to have a strong sense of your own identity and to see yourself reflected and to know that you are the human and divine in spite of what people are saying God says about you. Mm. That is, they need to know that it's lies and we need to just uplift and support and, and celebrate the librarians and the teachers who are, who know better and know that those books are exactly the books that need to be available and accessible and, and just keep them flowing, keep them flowing. So the people who are doing this and they're not, innocent it is connected all the way to the you know who's who's supposed to be set up to get elected in the next uh the next midterm elections and then after that and after that and after that you know these moms groups concerned moms groups are funded deep funded they're it's not innocent it's targeted and it's racist and it's endangering children and the LGBTQ community, and it's just in the anti-Semitism, and it's all connected to the violence and the, we know who to support and how to um, be vigilant and keep these, keep these books in, in circulation, keep them on the shelf. And, mm -hmm. and these are moments where we get to make choices that align our beliefs with our, how we move through the world. You see Dawn's question there about the Tennessee yeah. school district. I mean, this is banned mouse. I, it's, it's astounding. If people don't know what this book is, please. I mean, the best thing we can all do is buy these banned books and, and make sure that they're, they're in front of everybody we know, right? Because this is, this is a remarkable, remarkable yeah. thing to yeah. plan this. Believe it. Like, it's real important to, I feel like if we hear ourselves saying, I can't believe it, we should like correct it right in the moment. Believe it. Believe it. It's it's real. It's really happening. They're really trying to do it and they're succeeding to some degree. So everywhere that we can plant justice instead, everywhere that we can stand with each other, stick together and make it real clear that we're not 
we're not going to give those up. We're not going to silence those authors. We're not going to censor them. Well, and I'll, I'll add here quickly. I mean, a, a lot of what I write about is uh, history of race violence and, mm -hmm. you know, and the, how this is and banning and all of these things and mm -hmm. how, and hate, which I've done, I've written about a long time during this 20 years ago with the village voice about this rise mm -hmm. of hate in America, but a lot of people weren't interested you know, they thought, oh, that's somebody else. I was in New York City and nobody really cared. I mean, you know, that's somebody else. I hate to say it, but it was true, right? Yeah. But it's like this, it's real, right? Mm -hmm. History teaches that that this exact thing is done yeah. and that it leads to worse things. Yeah. Now, of course, ironically or whatever, they're trying to ban that history that would teach that you know, that so that we understand as a nation what we're what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it doesn't matter. I mean, party people of all points on the spectrum should be worried about book banning and uh, going after the First Amendment and suppress, suppression of thought and mm -hmm. all of these other things. I mean, that's mm -hmm. what I would say to people mm -hmm. when, you know, in 1875, give or take, it was the it was the white. Democrats and Dixiecrats of the South who were, you know, pre-Dixiecrats, mm -hmm. but who were banning and censoring the textbooks mm -hmm. to make the Confederacy look better. This is something that I've written about a lot. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is not new, you know, it's just that it's, it's, uh, it, it is on steroids right now. And one of the things yeah. I want to lift up something you said, and then I know producers going to make us take this out, but okay. uh, you, you said something really important there with the structural point mm -hmm. and that I, I want to put a fine point on for folks is that if we just declare everything equal, you embed the inequities. Mm. This is really important. And, and that's so important. It's mm. like the inequities aren't fixed, you know? And mm -hmm. so people are starting at a different place. Mm. Like in, you know, and so that's, that's the point. If we don't yeah. look at the systems and we have a series now that's going on, the black women, uh, COVID and systemic barrier system that we're doing. We call it the B BWC project, but it's about showing how problems that were magnified during COVID-19 for Black women and their families mm. are because of these systemic right. and structural inequities. And so that's the message that I want to send to folks, that mm -hmm. all of this should transcend partisanship and all of that BS. It should be about understanding that there are reasons for problems of today and yeah. that if we just decide everything is equal then those problems never get fixed they just no. get baked in for future generations right no we have to shake the whole thing we have to dismantle the you know loosen the bolts loosen the bolts right and Bring it just it takes it's, it just takes understanding and love i mean just be willing to 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 face these things and then the other fine point i'll put on what you said lifting up your points is that, uh, you know, this also, it, it's also about, I didn't do the things my ancestors did. I didn't own the slaves. I didn't fight for the Confederacy. I didn't, you know, I don't know if anyone lynched anyone. I do know the other things, but I didn't do those things. And so facing these, what we're talking about here is, is not about saying that we're guilty or inferior. I am inferior to no one or superior to no one based mm -hmm. on 
based on anything, but certainly my skin tone. And so that's the exact, I'm saying that back to the mm -hmm. banning folks because the mm -hmm. messaging is false mm -hmm. and the reasons that they're trying to do those things. And I think I saw myself as the little mm -hmm. girl in your book, the little white mm -hmm. girl trying to figure it out. Yeah. Um, and just it brought back a lot of the pain of, of being a child and going yeah. through those things. So give us one, I got to take us out, but what, yeah. one piece of advice, one challenge to, to white people watching this, if they ready, they, they want to do something, what would you tell them to do first? Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> Just one thing um, off the top of your head, because we got to go. Uh, <laughs> go with your instincts on this one. Racial justice is possible. Okay. I like it. Just, just take an action. So Yeah. In. In. Go in. Here. In. Yep. yep, <laughs> go, yep. Go with your gut. Go with your gut. Because you know what's wrong and you know what's right. And then mm -hmm. live into that. Live into mm -hmm. it. With and choices. you said, do it for yourself, you know, to save yourself. Yeah, I like and that. And you'll too. feel it. You'll feel it right mm -hmm. away. It'll shift. It'll shift okay. how you do everything. Okay. I got a slate here. But, Thanks. wow, this was such a great conversation. Thank, Thank you, you for coming and talking about this. As I said, we have invi invited Shad White onto the show if he'd like to come talk about why he doesn't like your book. We are more than happy to ha have that conversation with him, or he could submit a column to the Mississippi Free Press, and we will run that column because we are all about free expression of ideas. And so we urge other people to do the same. You're welcome. If you have a, uh, an opinion on an issue, as long as it's factual, we're not going to print a bunch of lies. Mm -hmm. But if you have an opinion on an issue and you'd like to get in touch with us about that, you can send that to me. Uh, or to Asia Wiggins, who is our voices editor, Asia, A-Z-I-A, -A, at MississippiFreePress.org. And we will see about getting you on the Mississippi Free Press website because it, we have got to keep the ideas exchanging and flowing, mm. especially at this point in our history. Thank you so much, Thank Anastasia. You. Uh, we appreciate you uh, coming on and, and, and just talking about your book and letting people know what it's it's really about. So thank you very much. Too. Thank you, Donna. Thank you, Kimberly. You're welcome. MSP Live is a production of the Mississippi Free Press, reader-supported solutions journalism for the Magnolia State. You'll find it at mfp.ms. MFP live streams most Thursdays on the MFP's Facebook and YouTube pages where you can listen live and participate in the show by commenting. The MFP Live podcast is an edited version of the live show. The hosts of MFP Live are MFP co-founders Donna Ladd and Kimberly Griffin. This episode of MFP Live was produced by Todd Stauffer. The podcast was produced by Courtney Munkier and it's available on popular listening apps and platforms. Learn more at mfp.ms live.